today's scripture come from Luke chapter 16, verses 10 through 13. <clears throat> one who is faithful in a very little is also faithful in much, and one who is dishonest in a very little is also dishonest in much. If then you have not been faithful in the unrighteous wealth, who will entrust to you the true riches? And if you have not been faithful in that which is another, who will you give that which is your own? No servant can serve two masters, for each he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money, is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you so much. Now, would you bow your heads and join me in prayer, asking for the Spirit of God to speak to his people. Father, we pray that you would indeed speak to us, for we, your children, are so eager and so hungry for your word. Lord, we ask that as we come before you, that we would keep an open mind and a humble spirit, and that our hearts would be ready to be impassioned yet again of the glorious hope of the gospel. Father, I also pray for those among us here who may be visiting us or may be new to the faith or wanting to learn more about the faith. God, whether we are veteran saints or whether we are emerging believers or just skeptical uh, doubters, oh God, meet us where we're at, and may this word be uniquely applied to all of us. For we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. So guys, here we are again. A brand new year filled with new hopes, new dreams, new expectations of what our life could become, presumably for the better. And to couple this newness, a major milestone that we celebrate today as a church family, our one-year anniversary. That's right. Today marks the day where we hit our one year of age. This is our tour, guys, all right? We made it. Praise God, right? Let's thank God for that. Amen, right? And so with all this excitement of this being the first Sunday of 2019 and this being our first year as an independent church, I find myself being very tempted, tempted in wanting to energize, wanting to encourage, wanting to enlighten you with today's message with something of gravitas, something of grandiosity, something of greatness. But you know what? I'm not going to do it. No, I'm not going to do that. And if you are disappointed in that, well, let me respond to your disappointment by quoting the great Demi Lovato by saying, I'm sorry, I'm not sorry. I'm sorry, I'm not sorry. I am not apologetic for your disappointment, not because I don't want to energize, not because I don't want to encourage or enlighten you with greatness, but simply more because of the fact that greatness doesn't work. Greatness doesn't work. Case in point, consider what we all do stereotypically at the beginning of every new year. New Year's resolution at this time last year, January 2018, Statista, the online company that does statistical analysis, identified for us the top 10 New Year's resolution that people gave, and here they are. Tying it at first place at 37% was eat healthier, exercise, save money, and then self-care at 24%, read more, 18%, make new friends, 15%, learn a new skill, also 15%, get a new job, 14%, and Coming in at 13% at the very bottom, take up a new hobby. These are the 10 most cited New Year's resolution that people made at the beginning of last year. And when you consider what these are, initially they don't seem that great, that grandiose. But if you think about it, they actually are. Because these kinds of resolutions are what makes the practical difference between a life that's very fulfilled 
to a life that's unfulfilled, to a life that is great, to a life that isn't so great. And so now with that established, I say to you again, greatness doesn't work. What do I mean? Well, if you're paying attention to that list, have a, just put it back up real quick. I said this is the top 10, right? But if you were counting, I only put up nine. There's something missing. And I did that on purpose, right? Because I wanted to tell you, show you, spotlight for you, the second most cited New Year's resolution. And you know what it is? Coming in at 32%, I don't plan on making New Year's resolutions, right? 32% coming really close to the top three that were tied for first place. Why is it that so many people today, and it seems to be growing, don't even bother in making New Year's resolutions, Because they discovered what I'm telling you right now. Greatness doesn't work. Specifically, setting goals that are great, that are grandiose, are simply not achievable. You see, if you want a life of greatness, if you want a life that is fulfilled, you need to do what our passage tells us we need to do. We must be faithful in the little things. Again, the pathway to a great slash fulfilling life is not by throwing a Hail Mary trying to achieve some grandiose goal. No, it comes from the steady, faithful achievements of little things. That's today's message. That's the main idea. That's the main takeaway that I want you to get from today's sermon. And to help convince you of this, right, I want to parse this out from this passage that Jesus tells us because as we take a look at what Jesus has to say about little things, we come to discover how profound they are so that as individuals and collectively as a church family, we can move forward towards greatness because that is indeed what I want for all of you. That's what I want for us. Okay. So with that in mind, three things I'd like to share with you as it pertains to the little things. Number one, let's talk about the impact of little things. Number two, the right goal for the little things, and then finally we'll end it with the power to do the little things. The impact of little things, the right goal for the little things, and finally the power to do the little things. First, the impact of little things. Now, I think it goes without saying that we tend to underestimate things that are little. For example, I know some of you men in here, you're into mixed martial arts, MMA, right? And usually whenever you have a situation where you have a big guy fighting a little guy and all else being equal, equal level of skill, equal level of fight experience, the general consensus is the bigger guy is better, right? Or consider another category of life that we can all relate to, the size of our living space, right? Whether you're talking about your apartment or your house. Here in New York, we come to discover that our increase of income doesn't necessarily translate into an increase of living space as you could get if you lived in another city. But every now and then, some of us are fortunate enough in getting that rare deal where for the price of a small apartment in the same area, you can actually have square footage. And in that instance, yes, again, right? The bigger apartment is better than the little one. This is the recurring belief that gets so reinforced in so many categories of life to the point that we absolutize a belief that says bigger is always better, little is always lousy, right? You see, as a culture, we always undervalue or we put little value to the little things of life. But you know what? Jesus could not disagree with that idea more. Because consider what he says in the first half of verse 10 of our passage where he says this, one who is faithful in a very little is also faithful in much. Pause right there. Notice how positive Jesus' attitude is towards the little things. It's the complete opposite to our general attitude towards little things. 
He has such high regard for the little things of life. And the question is, why? Well, he tells us in that second half statement that we just read. Because when you're faithful in the little things, you're, quote, faithful in much. Jesus is teaching us here a cause and effect dynamic that happens in life, which is when you get the little things done right and you do it consistently, they add up to where you do the great things rightly as well. Or if I could have put it this way, in order to achieve the great things in life, it begins, continues, and ends in doing the little things as well, by achieving the little things. And this idea that Jesus is conveying is something that has been verified in the social science over and over again. For example, in his New York Times bestselling book, The Tipping Point, Malcolm Gladwell, social scientist, talks about how New York underwent a tremendous transformation that many of you in here witnessed firsthand, right? Many of you in here are old enough to remember how dangerous, how violent, how scary this city used to be. But then at some point in the mid-90s, everything changed for the better, so much so that people who would never have stepped foot in the 1980s were coming in droves and still coming, gentrifying everything. And the question is, what happened? Why was New York under such tremendous transformation? Listen to what he discovered in his research. Quote, little changes have big effects. All of the possible reasons for why New York's crime rate dropped are changes that happened at the margin. They were incremental changes. The crack trade leveled off. The population got a little older. The police force got a little better yet the effect was dramatic in 1992 there were 2104 murders in new york city and 626,182 serious crimes within five years murders had dropped 64.3 percent to 770 and total crime has fallen to almost half to 353,893 pretty incredible And yet it confirms what Jesus says here in verse 10, which is the impact little things can have can be so great to where it can lead to achieving great things. Now, with that said, we need to be sure that we don't miss what Jesus says in the second half of verse 10, because as I'll show you in a moment, what he says there, unfortunately, tends to be more relevant to us. Listen again to what he says. One who is dishonest in a very little is also dishonest in much. Interesting. It turns out the impact little things can have on us are not only great things in a positive sense, but also great things in a negative sense. And that seems so counterintuitive because usually we don't think of something great as something being bad. Usually we think if something is great, it's inherently good. But if you think about it, you know that's not true because either you've witnessed in someone else's life or you've experienced in your own great loss, great sorrow, great tragedy just because something is great doesn't mean it's good in fact great can be bad which means the little things that leads to those great tragedies can also be bad right and this is something scripture warns us over and over again to be on the watch out for listen to what it says in proverbs chapter 6 starting in verse 9 we read but you lazy bones how long will you sleep when will you wake up a little extra sleep, a little more slumber, slumber, excuse me, a little folding of the hands to rest, then poverty will pounce on you like a bandit. Scarcity will attack you like an armed robber. What's it saying? Simple. If you underestimate the impact of little things, whether it's sleeping in a little bit, missing out on a crucial family event here or there, having that one little extra drink, something that on the surface just seems so minuscule something so unthreatening is one step closer to great loss great tragedy great sorrow 
Yes, indeed. Little things make great impact. But the question is, are you choosing the right little things that will lead you to a truly fulfilling life? Or are you choosing the wrong little things that will lead you to a truly tragic life? It's a question that we must ask. And by asking such, another question pops up. And that is, how do we figure out? How do we discern what little things we should pursue and what little things we should forsake? A great question that leads me to my second point, the right goal for little things. Skip down and read with me verse 13 of our passage where Jesus says the following, No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Now, when you first read verse 13, you're a little bit perplexed because it almost sounds like Jesus just abruptly changed his subject. What does money have anything to do with this discussion of little things that he was making in my first point? It almost seems like he's totally going off in tangent form, but oh, you would be wrong to think that way. And let me show you why. You see, by talking about money, Jesus is trying to teach us two things, okay? The first thing that he wants to teach us is that money, more than anything, can help you, oh, excuse me, let me say this again. Money, more than anything, reveals that we have so different views of what a great, fulfilling life looks like. Money, more than anything, reveals that so many of us have such differing views of what is considered a great and fulfilling life. And the second thing Jesus is trying to teach us is that money is a very bad substitute in trying to figure out what the little things in life are, okay? The little things you should do. Let's quickly go through them, okay? Starting with the first one. Money reveals, more than anything else, that every single one of us have a very different view of what makes life great and fulfilling. You know, a question that my mom asks me frequently whenever she visits is, John, if you had $1 billion, what would you do with it? Right? She asked me that a lot. <clears throat> what would you do with a billion dollars? And always my answer to that question is very different to her answer to that question. And indeed, when I ask Sarah that same question or my friends or simply a random stranger are trying to get to know, hands down, the answers that they give, very, very different to the answer that I would give. My view of what I think makes a great fulfilling life is going to be different to your view of what you think makes a great and fulfilling life. And furthermore, what you think what makes a great fulfilling life is going to be different to what your friends think, your siblings think, your children think, and so forth. Okay? <clears throat> now, how do you explain these different views? How do you explain that these are the different kinds of answers that come up when it comes to the issues of extravagant wealth? Well, some people might answer by saying, well, different strokes for different folks, right? And what they mean by that is it's because we have different personalities, different preferences, different priorities that would manifest in us having different ideas of what a great, fulfilling life looks like. And the underlying assumption behind that kind of answer is that these different views they're not inherently right or wrong. It's just personal opinion. There's nothing inherently wrong with us having different views of what a great and fulfilling life is. But you know what? I beg to differ. I really question that. Case in point, my honeymoon. My mom was very generous in paying for Sarah and I's honeymoon to the Sandals Resort in Jamaica. And on day one, it was very obvious that what I thought would be a great and fulfilling life at that moment of our lives was very different to Sarah's view of what she thought a great and fulfilling life would look like at that moment. For me, it was staying in our room, sleeping in, getting room service to where I would read one to 10 books. I literally, I'm not joking. You can, I packed 10 books, right, honey? I packed books. And when I told her this, she looked at me like I was a nut job. She said, no, 
her vision of a great and fulfilling life at that moment, man, going to the beach, checking out the different cute little gift shops on campus, and eating at the 24-7 various awesome restaurants that were available to us. Uh Uh-oh, we have a problem, right? We have a problem here. Because in order for me to experience what I consider to be a great, fulfilling life, I have to forsake the one person who makes my life the most fulfilled, right? Because even if she gritted her teeth and came along or agreed to do what I did, I mean, let me ask you guys, do you enjoy doing the things that you love when the person you love don't enjoy the things that you do? (laughs) It's not fun, right? I mean, she'll be there, but she won't be there, right? She'll be there, but she won't be there. You see? What's my point? My point is simply this. This idea that our differing views of a great fulfilling life is simply a matter of different strokes for different folks, that it's just this harmless differences of opinions is not convincing to me. No, I don't buy it at all. Especially when you consider the fact that in order for us to enjoy what we would consider a great fulfilling life means that we have to basically be without that one person who makes our life so fulfilled or a group of people. It makes no sense. And so here's the question. Is it possible to live a great, fulfilled life without having to abandon or get in conflict with the very people who are so important to you? Jesus says, yes, there is. And to explain his answer, he teaches us the second aspect of what he wants us to know with this reference to money, and that is money helps you understand what little things you should do or you should not do. Stay with me. Money is one of those things in life that can really clarify and really help you pay attention to the little things in life that you probably normally would not pay attention to. And what I mean by that is money can influence us in such a way that it can force us to pay close attention to every little detail of our lives. Let me give you a kind of a a funny illustration of this. Let's say a group of your friends are going on a four-day trip to the Bahamas and you have to go. It's not an option of whether you want to go. No, they're like, you are going. Right? Whether it's a group of your college friends who just graduated school and this is your last hurrah before you get separated with professional living. Or maybe you know one of your bros is getting married and all the guys say, hey, man, we got to go. Bachelor party, you're coming. right? Or maybe it's you know that, that, that girlfriend of yours is pregnant for the first time and the lady's like, hey, baby moon, baby moon, we got to go. Regardless, it is a trip that you have to go on. Okay, And so you know you're going, but here's the rub. This trip is very, very expensive. And the only way that you can afford to go is if you start saving for the next three months, which means what? For the next three months, you're going to be taking close attention to your budget, and now all of a sudden you're going to take little thoughts, little decisions. You're going to focus on the little things when it comes to your financial life and make these little decisions like, how often can I go out to eat? How often you know, can I use my credit card, if at all? How often can I go to Dunkin' across the street or get Taster's Choice in the kitchen cupboard, right? Money, more than anything, sometimes, can really get you to fixate on the little things in life that so easily we ignore or never pay attention to, right? That's what money can do. It can get you to look at the minutia of your life to where it impacts every little decision you make. Here's the question. Is there anything else that can have that kind of impact? Yes, God. God. If you ever read through the Bible, specifically the Old Testament, like the book of Leviticus, you'll read God commanding his people in such a way that they have to pay attention to such the little things of life. 
right? God gives commands like, you know, you can eat this kind of food and not this kind of food. And you can only eat this kind of food at this time of year. Or if you want to plant seed, you got to make sure that you, you planted this seed next to this seed. Or if you want to have clothing, you got to make sure you never, you know, make it up with two separate threads or fiber of different kinds of fur and animals. It's like very detailed. It's so minutia. And even the, 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 the parameters of the buildings that God commands people to build. It has to be this cubit by that cubit, this size or that size, this bushel of wheat, this amount of... It's like so minutia. And you're thinking to yourself, why does God do this? Why does God care about the little bitty details? Why does he care about these little things? Jesus tells us here in this reference to money. Because Jesus wants us to love God the way we tend to love money. That's why. Let me say that again. Jesus wants us to love God the way we tend to love money. You know why? Because when you love God the way you love money, you start paying attention to the little things of your life, even to the point of things that no one else is aware of with regard to you, such as your motives, your desires, your thoughts. Okay? And by doing this very detailed internal audit of the little things of life, you start to notice things that you don't do that you should be doing, or you start realizing things that you should do that you aren't doing. Let me give you an example of this. <clears throat> in Matthew chapter 5, Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, he says this, starting in verse 27. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than your whole body to go into hell. What's he saying? He's saying that when you love God, the way you love money, right? Not only will you be able to avoid these great tragic sins like cheating on your spouse, but you'll also pay attention to those little sins that could lead you closer and closer to those great sins, like those innocent flirtations with that person at work or watching that award-winning show that everyone is watching, even though it has explicit scenes that maybe you shouldn't be watching, or maybe having that prolonged coffee break with that old friend, maybe a former ex, a little harmless little thing, no, no big whoop, right? So when you learn to love God, the way you tend to love money, those things don't fall through the filter. You pick them up right away and you notice them and you're vigilant and you see, ah, now I know the little things I must pay attention to. I must know the little things I'm permitted to do as well as the little things I shouldn't do at all, right? What is all that? That's paying attention. And by doing this, you get to experience the kind of fulfilled, great life that even money, and in fact, nothing else can ever give to you. Because this kind of fulfilled life doesn't lead to you having to exclude or get into conflict with the people who make your life so fulfilled. No, they're part of the very people, right? Like your spouse. <laughs> Instead of getting into conflict because you cheated on her, you stay faithful to her. You stay faithful to him. And now you have a flourishing marriage because you know the little things. What's the point? The point is this. If you want to have the kind of fulfilled life that includes the people who fulfills your life so much, it requires loving God rather than loving money instead of God. Let me say that again. If you want to have the kind of fulfilled life that is truly great, 
It requires you to love God rather than money instead of God. That is the primary goal. Making God your greatest love. And when that is your primary goal, you now have the right goal in figuring out what little things you need to do as well as not do in order to reach that goal. But here's the question. How do you do that? How can you possibly make God your greatest love? Right? I mean, it's hard enough for us to even love God as much as our kids, our spouse, ourselves. But yet scripture says you need to love God more than any of those people. How can we do that? The answer leads me to my final point, the power to do the little things. Turn with me to 1 John chapter 4, and let's read together verse 10 where it reads this. This is love. Not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Here, the apostle John informs us how we can love God, and that is we must first be aware, and therefore we must accept God's love for us. In other words, God must first act in his love for us in order for us to react in our loving him. And if what they say is true, that every reaction is equal, if not <clears throat> less than, the initial action that causes the reaction, that means what? That means God's love for you is far greater than even your greatest attempt to love him. Right? Which means what? If you want God to be your greatest love, you need to become increasingly aware day by day, week by week, month by month, year by year, how great God loves you. If you, if your perception of God's love for you is greater this year than last year, that means you're growing. If your view of how much God loves you is the same or less than last year, you're not growing, right? And you're not growing in your goal of making God your greatest love. It is only when God is your greatest love that you can even begin to attempt of having God be your great love. You know, the Bible has so many ways of describing God's love for us. But one especially moving description that moves me all the time is this idea that God's love is so great that his love enables him to know every little detail of our lives details about our lives that we don't even care to know about ourselves here a sampling of some scripture passages psalm 139 verses 6 through 10 says oh lord you have examined my heart and you know everything about me you know when i sit down or stand up you know my thoughts even when i'm far away you see me when i travel and when i rest at home you know everything i do you know what i'm going to say even before i say it lord you go before me and follow me you place your hand of blessing on my head such knowledge is too wonderful for me too great for me to understand Psalm 56, you keep track of all my sorrows. You have collected all my tears in your bottle. You have recorded each one in your book. And finally, Matthew 10. What is the price of two sparrows? One copper coin, but not a single sparrow can fall to the ground without your father knowing it. And the very hairs on your head are all numbered. So don't be afraid. You are more valuable to God than a whole flock of sparrows. You know, I'm aware that for many of us, it's hard to believe that God really loves us. I mean, truly, really loves us. I mean, you hear it all the time. You grew up with it, going to Sunday school, attending church, right? But for the most part, the most that we can muster in terms of what our belief is with regards to God's love for us is that maybe God loves us with this vague, generic love, kind of similar to the way my boss would love me. The only time he or she would pay attention is if I produce, if I perform, then maybe... 
He might personalize his attention. Maybe he might notice me uniquely and understand who I am as a person. You know, when you come to that belief, you have to go back to what the gospel teaches. The gospel which the Apostle John perfectly encapsulate in that that passage we just read in chapter 4 of his epistle. Read again to that last statement. He loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. What is John saying? He's saying the way that you know God loves you, and not just generically loves you, not vaguely loves you, but truly deeply loves you is by the fact that he sent his son to come into the world as Jesus Christ to die on the cross For what? For the forgiveness of your sins, past, present, and future. Jesus came into the world to be your savior substitute. He took your place to eradicate, to erase, to forever erode this status of you being a sinner. He's gotten rid of all of your sins, not your dad's sins, not your child's sins, not your brother's sins, your sins, your personal sins. Why is that so important to know? Think about it. Why would God forgive us of our sins? Your sins, your personal sins. So that he could get close to you, right? If you have something to hide, usually some sin issue, which is what all things that we hide are, some weakness, some perversion, some embarrassing flaw that you have, what do you do? You keep people at a distance, You don't want them to get too close because once they get close, the facade is over. The closer they get, the more they get to know you, they see the hot mess that we all are, right? They see the issues. They see the the complexes. They see the frustrations. They see the, the weaknesses, right? That's what sin does. The closer they get, they see it, and it creates guilt and shame. Could it not be, Christian, that the reason why God forgives you of your sins is so that that distance between you and him, that personal space, would not be invaded? So where no distance would need to be created, so that no uh, sense of foreign disconnect would ever be involved. You see, the whole point of the cross is to convince every single one of you as individuals That when God says he loves you by forgiving you of your sins, he's not speaking of a generic love. He's talking about a unique, individualized love for you. And that love, that great love, is for you. And the expression in which he loves you is an expression that he does not share with any other person. That's what the gospel teaches us. That's how great his love is. See, when you understand that, now you begin to have the power, now you begin to have the desire of saying, money is not my great love. God is my great love. And your main goal, your main objective in life is to grow in your understanding of God's great love for you so that you can increase in your love for him to greatness. And when you get that goal straight, all of a sudden, the little things that seem so hard to decipher, the little things that you're unsure of what you should do or not do, automatically becomes so clear and so evident, right? And by doing these little things, little by little, not watching this kind of movie, not engaging in this kind of atmosphere, not doing this little thing, right? That most people would say, why, why, why do you care? It's a little thing. Just do it. What's the big deal? The more you do those little things, the more fulfilled your life becomes, the more greatness comes into your life. And the people who makes your life so fulfilled get to enjoy it 
rather than be in conflict with you because of it or have to be absent from you in order for you to achieve it. Do you see? And so you have, as we begin this new year, my hope and prayer is that you as individuals, you as a family, and we as a church, that we can achieve great things. Great things, not by attempting to change the world in one sweep, by us instead being faithful in the little things. May not be grandiose, may not be spotlighted, may not be posted on Facebook, but yet the little things that matter. So that as you are faithful more and more, greatness starts intruding into your life and it becomes exhibited for the world to see. So that when you're long gone, it continues on and builds up in the next generation. What a great joy that could be that we could hit the tipping point for this world to be changed by the promise of the gospel. Are you in? Are you out? At this time, I want to end by coming up with some practical next steps for you to better apply today's message. Number one, if you're here today and you're not a Christian, but today's message has really got you where you need it, I invite you to take this time, go to God, pray to him, acknowledge that you need him in your life. Make him the center of your life. Make Jesus your Lord and Savior. Confess your sins and recognize that you need him. And afterwards, come talk to me. Come talk to Pastor James. We will love to get you oriented as you begin this wonderful journey that so many of us have gone on and continue to do so. Number two, take some time and ask yourself the following questions. Number one, do I know the little things I should be doing and not be doing? Do you know what the little things are for the Christian faith? Number two, can I honestly say, based on what I get excited about, what I worry about, that I truly love God or that I love money instead of God? If your answer honestly is no to any of these questions, it's bad. But at least it's good in the sense that you know that it's bad. Take this time now to go before the Lord, as I do many times, by repenting and asking for forgiveness and asking for the Lord to help you to see a revitalized vision of his love for you, an increasing vision of how great his love is for you. And then finally, number three, in your Oikos groups, let some brainstorming happen by identifying what are the little things that we can do? What are the little sacrifices that we could make? What are the little acts of obedience that we can do so that in the accumulation of these things, the impact is generational. The impact is cosmic. And maybe you can keep each other accountable for the next six weeks or maybe for the rest of the year. So that by the end of next year, you can say, is my love for God greater than it was this year? Yes, it was. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we ask that you would help us to truly live out today's message, a message that we all need to live, a message that we need to be inspired by. Lord, I ask that whatever little things that have invaded into our lives because we have been so dismissive, that we have been so minimal in our vigilance against. Have mercy on us. But Lord, also we pray more significantly that you will increase our awareness of how great your love is, that each day, each week, each month, each year, our understanding of how great your love is is expanded beyond our current horizons. And with each increase of knowledge, our affections for you would increase more and more to where it will get closer and closer and yet never meet the greatness of your love for us. Oh God, would you help us to live out this truth and bless us in our endeavor to do it. For we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.